Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. Your co-host here, Aaron Cameron, with Adam Pawatic, as always. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Derek Lobo, who is the broker of record at SVN Rock Advisors. This is the third appearance Derek has had on the podcast. Of course, we're talking about apartments and in particular apartment construction, which is sort of Derek's expertise or specialty. A reminder to our listeners that once we're done having a conversation with Derek, Adam and I will do a quick after show digesting the conversation. Derek, thanks for coming back on. Nice to hear from you. Pleasure, guys. We know your background. We've heard the stories of selling books and you know, some of the opportunities that you created for yourself. So if you are interested to hear kind of Derek's history, you can always go back and listen to the last couple episodes. But you know, there's been so much going on in the apartment world over the last couple of months as we kind of settle into COVID. Before we get going, Derek, let's date stamp it. It's September 14th, 2020. And so there's been frequent change going on these days. Why don't you start with kind of what you've heard? We interviewed you back in March. And it was very much more of a, everybody just be patient, you know, everybody just be safe kind of messaging. So we're now, I don't know, five, six months on. How's your business going? What are you kind of seeing over the last few months? Yeah. So, you know, the apartment sector has been extraordinarily resilient. I mean, I think we all knew that apartments were recession proof from the recessions that we've been through. And I've been through a lot of them because I've moved across North America solving, you know, generally vacancy problems over 30 years. But I think they're recession proof, but they're also proving to be up until now virus proof. The industry has done well compared to all the other asset classes, maybe self-storage and industrial are in that same category. But, you know, when this thing first started, everybody said, look, what's going to happen to the rents on April 1st? And we were doing webinars on it and thousands of people were joining, you know what I mean? Saying what to do in April, May. And by the time June came around, nobody even asked the question, what percent of residents are going to pay their rent? It was that high. So I think the apartment sector has done extraordinarily well. I'll talk a little bit later on the opportunity comes up about, you know, rents and cap rates and things like that. But I think it's been a pleasant surprise for everybody. There haven't been that many transactions. Transactions for the six months prior to the shutdown to after in apartments across Canada have been down 40%. And I think a lot of those deals were actually baked before the shutdown and then they closed in the last six months. So I suspect that, you know, the next six months you're going to see low. But we have done a couple of deals, I think three, where we've got the deal under contract post-COVID And it's either closed or it's firm. So transactions are occurring. Are any of those distressed or are that just, you know, two people doing business? Yeah. And I want to say this real clearly, okay? Zero distressed. The number one thing, and I've done hundreds of conversations like you guys have during the shutdown period, right? Everyone said to me now, Derek, I've got some dry powder, bring me some deals. I don't even think, and who knows how this thing's going to play out. But right now, given the trajectory that we're on, I don't see any deals. And, and, you know, in the apartment sector, you only see deals when there's a partnership problem or a site-specific problem. Do you know what I mean? And some deals in Fort McMurray. But other than that, I really don't see any deals on the horizon. So the guys who are saying, like in the U.S., people were busy setting up vulture funds to buy apartments and things like that. I just don't see that happening in Canada. And I don't think I'm being overly optimistic. I'm not an overly optimistic person in terms of how I view the future, but the apartment sector is just solid and nothing is indicating that they're going to be deals. I'll talk about where there are places of pain in the marketplace, but it's just been solid and it's been solid for reasons. Number one, there's a fixed supply of apartments in Canada and the population has been growing. So we're building for what's already a deficit in demand. It's not like we're building for the future. We're just building to catch up. Number two, investors 
have taken it on the chin in many asset classes. All their apartments are holding solid. I think they're going to want more apartments. And third, you guys know that historically low interest rates, but I think the difference now, and I'd be interested in your opinion, they're low, but I think everyone thinks they're going to stay low now. Whereas before that, say, wait till they rise. Well, I'm not sure they're going to rise anymore. And then fourth, I think, you know, for new construction anyways, land costs and construction costs may come off because the other asset classes are going to hurt. And for the three reasons I mentioned, plus that, I think apartments look really solid. Along that same thought then, if we are theoretically, you know, we've seen the worst of COVID behind us and on the rise, if you had put together, you know, a quote unquote of a vulture fund down in the US or you're just sitting on dry powder here, are you never going to have a chance to deploy it in this part of the cycle? Is that the idea that you will never be able to pick up as a cheap asset? Again, you can't say never, but based on, you know, how things are looking right now, I would guess there are going to be no distressed assets in purpose-built rental apartments. Maybe the only place there could be some is in new construction where maybe, you know, there's been some delays, the guy has expensive mezzanine money or something like that and something goes, but it'll be site-specific and I think developer-specific. Or maybe the developer gets in trouble in some other part of his business and it spills over into the apartments. But I can't see anyone who's been in this business for the last, even just five years, having a problem. There's just nothing on the horizon that shows that. Which will disappoint some of your buyers, but ultimately is good for the market that it did withstand the pressure of COVID and also deliver the promise. And we've mentioned this on the podcast before, that if you were talking about apartments being recession-proof in 2017 and 18, who cares? You know, the markets are amazing. But now you're really seeing that value pay off that you bought at a lower cap rate than other assets you could have got into. A hundred percent. And you know, I think today, when you think about any investment that you guys want to make with your own money or your client's money and things like that, I mean, stability is just so important today. And I always remember a client, he said to me, Derek, don't tell me how much money I'm going to make. Tell me how much I'm never going to lose. I never forgot that lesson. Equity is an opinion that is real. Uh, yeah, we're familiar with that. You talked about new development earlier, just maybe being a little bit of a pain point in the apartment yes. space. Do you want to just run across the country, start in the West, work East, about just kind of what different things you might be seeing as it relates to absorption and just supply? Yeah, I think that's really worthwhile talking about. I think I'd rather do it in terms of tier one, tier two, and tier three. Like sure. the city doesn't matter, right? So I would say tier one, you know, the high rise, luxury, top of the market apartment is actually feeling the pain point. So, you know, we're Ontario based and you guys are too. So if you take Toronto, there's some new apartment buildings that are under construction or the ones in lease up right now. Those have felt some pain because, you know, you were at the top of the market, right? So you're four and $5 rents. Now, the four and $5 rent guy has money to pay his rent. But at the end of their lease, I think they do a reevaluation of do I really want to be paying four and $5 rent? And I would liken it to this. I think very few 250,000 fully loaded Land Rovers have sold, but lots of Volvo have sold. Do you see my point? So when you're at the top, top of the market, I think people are reevaluating, do I really need to spend this much money in rent? So while that four and $5 renter paid his rent through this period, I think upon lease renewal, they are reevaluating that and maybe considering moving out. Whereas in the boom time before this, everything stayed good. So I say top of the market rents have come off. And I don't think they've come off as much as people are saying. I'm going to guess maybe 10%, right? They've come off. So that 425 rent is now maybe, you know, 370 or something like that, or that $5 rent is in the mid to low fours. So that's new construction. But in that same group, I would say the larger units are renting slower. So if you've got a small, efficient one-bedroom, it's probably renting faster than the larger deluxe one-bedroom. Again, it's a price point thing. Like a one-bedroom is a one-bed. For the same reason, the super luxury cars and selling, but 
the good quality car is selling. So the tier one, I think, brand new construction in that urban area probably has gotten hurt the most. In the secondary suburban markets, they're doing great. And the tertiary markets are doing great. The only thing we saw was that, I think we're through the worst of the COVID now, but in the beginning, you were finding that the older suburban or tertiary market renter was less going out of the house, right? Because they were more worried. So they would kind of show up more with the mask on and the gloves than they would the younger downtown renter. So traffic dramatically dropped, but I think it's fair to say it's going back up again. It's not where it was before, but everything is about the trajectory. But again, you can't count. If we had a second wave, then that trajectory is going to change. But you look at it, it kind of went down dramatically in the first four or five, six weeks. And then it's slowly been steadily making a comeback and is approaching more normal, normal level. So the pain's been at the top of the market. It has not been at the middle of the market at all. Seniors have moved slower, right? Because housing sales slowed down, but those are picking up now, right? So I think things have been pretty good across the board in the older apartments. So vacancies aren't that high. Rents, we had a mid-rent, $1.52 per square foot. I really don't think that there's been a lot of pain, right? But it's been at the top of the market and it's been in the larger units at the top of the market, if that makes sense to you guys. So when talking about downturns and then recoveries, you always hear about luxury single family that is the first to get hit in a downturn and then also the first to recover in the downturn. Given that we've seen that happen in apartment rental, that the first to get hit was, of course, luxury rental. Do you anticipate that they'll also benefit from the first parts of the recovery as well? I'm not sure that's going to hold true for apartments. Let's assume you have to drop your rent, right, from that initial, let's say, 425 number down to 370. I think it's going to take a while to get it back up again. You know, you're going to have, let's say, one or two years at this 370 number, okay? And let's say you have about 20% of your turnover, 25% of your turnover. And by the way, you do have higher turnover the closer your rent is to the market, right? When your rent's way below the market, then your turnover could be, you know, 10% or 15%. So now all of a sudden you've got, you know, 30, 40, 50% of your building paying that lower rent, right? Even although they may not be rent controlled, you just can't jack up the rent that much on a sitting tenant. It might take it two or three years to get back to where you were if you've dropped your rent. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Derek, I was just going to say, how are your clients, how are apartment owners managing this? Are they sticking out, waiting longer to rent that unit at a higher per square foot rent or all in rent? Are they accepting that they just need to lease these things up more quickly so they're really coming down faster? Yeah. I mean, I've heard stories of some landlords saying, you know what, I'd rather sit on a vacant unit for six to eight months and wait for the market to turn and get back up to that high end rather than come down and get stuck with those lower rents to start with, particularly in the rent-controlled provinces where sure. they may be stuck with that lower rent for 10 years or whatever, right? Yeah, I think it's going to determine you know, your bench strength as an apartment owner. But if you're in a new apartment construction lease-up, I think it would be quite risky to wait because you know the clock is ticking. You've got to get your takeout financing. It's expensive, right? If you're an existing apartment, or let's say you know, you've got a portfolio of 60s and 70s. Here's my advice. Don't get behind. Because if you get behind and all of a sudden, unless you've got 1,000 units, then you, when you've got 10, 20 units empty, it's livable, right? But if you get to 100 units empty, that is difficult to catch up on. Because remember, you've got turnover going on at the same time. So the closer you are to the market, I think you've got to be careful. I'd liken it to gaining weight. Very easy to gain, very hard to lose. So you can let your vacancies creep up on you and all of a sudden have a big number, then it's hard work to bring that number back down again. So it all depends on your situation. And so step up your marketing, step up your sales, step up the compensation, your front line, step up the work you're doing in your unit, but do not fall behind. What about guys that have the pipeline? 
that you know they had acquired land or you know had existing yeah. density opportunities. Are you seeing delays in starts, or yeah. what's the conversation like for those really? guys that want to keep the pipeline going but aren't sure about timeframes? You know, it's ironic that I think apartment development is actually speeding up, and it's speeding up because people are pivoting to the apartment sector. Let me give you an example. You guys have been to some of the live sessions we've done. You know, we do apartment development seminars. They were two-day mm-hmm. events. We did them at the Sheraton or the Metro Toronto Convention Center. So we would normally have between 100 and 150 paid attendees. It was for developers only. I ran the same seminar online at the same price, okay? We had 220 people attend this year. And our feasibility study works. So we do feasibility studies for developers when they first build. And we saw it, I'm using my hands here, but we saw it like we had a certain level. Then when March came, it dropped off and we finished off the work we were doing. And just when we were finishing off, it picked up. And I would say our speed of doing studies is faster than it was pre-shutdown. And so a lot of developers who are building retail, hotel, office, whatever, are pivoting to apartments because it's the safe asset class. You can get construction financing, you can get CMHC financing. So in so many things, it's kind of been the opposite of what we thought. We've heard that too. I mean, Adam and I are so fortunate to have the opportunity to talk to a lot of different institutions, whether it's Rio Can or Crombie right. or Smart Centers. They're all they're focused all on apartments. And those are the three sort of, right. some of the larger ones. Choice Properties, of course, I'll throw them in there. The numbers are staggering. I think Jonathan Gitlin of Rio Can was talking about $11 billion of cost on apartment development in their yeah. pipelines. Like just yeah. massive. Do you have visibility? Maybe I'm sorry if I'm putting you on the spot of just some of the numbers you hear about, you know, apartment starts and just what does that trajectory look like? You know, where were we in 2015? Because I remember in 2015 or 16, it was deplorable, but they were saying it's going to take us 100 years to develop enough apartments to meet demand. I'm assuming, you know, given what you're saying and what we've been, you know, hearing is that there's a bit of a transition and then what are those start numbers look like? What is the number of units coming to market? Is it really growing rapidly? I think I can give you sort of a high level number. So new apartment construction is the foundation of our business. So we pay attention, we track it really carefully. I would guess at a high level that we have 300 buildings in Canada that are at some stage of construction started. Hole in the ground to lease up. Okay, now the smallest building is 20 units. The biggest one is, you know, 500 units, let's say, or some of the sites are like that. So I would say there's 300 buildings at some stage of construction where it's actually started. Then I would say that there are another thousand, but the total would be about a thousand that are in the planning stages or, you know, pre-building stage. How big is the universe in Canada? They're just trying to put some percentages on it for people. I don't even know. Do you know at the top of your head? To put it in perspective, Ontario has 25,000 buildings in it. Six units or more. It's a small amount. And that's across Canada. And those are going to take years to build out. So let's say maybe we've got, I don't know, two, three hundred buildings a year coming to the market. Maybe. Yeah. And I know if Ontario is 25,000, I think Montreal or Quebec is like 70 something thousand, but predominantly six plexes. But nevertheless, right? I think the total buildings in the country is well north of 100,000. So you're talking about a thousand in total. It really is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And those are coming over a period of time. Like they're not all arriving at one time, right? I mean, if you look at the cycle for building an apartment, it's probably three to five years. So the narrative of we're catching up and starting to meet the demand isn't there yet, clearly. We, we are not catching up. I think the situation, you know, an immigration will return. I think we're still moving to a shortage. The way you build rental stock is you build luxury apartments 30 years ago and today it becomes affordable. And we just have that huge built-in gap that there is no magic bullet for. And there just isn't one. I don't know how we solve it. Like It's such a large gap on the affordability side that it's going to take some real cooperation at the federal, provincial, municipal, and CMHC level to solve this problem. 
it's a serious one. Derek, you mentioned before that you do feasibility studies as one of your business lines. Which markets are you seeing feasibility studies that come out with a borderline conclusion yeah, or, sure. or less than friendly conclusion for moving ahead with the project? Yeah, you know, we tell developers, look, we're going to give you a quick free no if the answer is no. Fair enough? So if the answer is yes, we got to do some work to tell you just how good it is. But we can tell you immediately within a 10-minute discussion if the answer is no. So the deals that show up to be borderline, and let's say they're area-dependent and developer-dependent. Fair enough? So let's talk about area-dependent. So if you are in, I'll pick a place, Laval, and you've got you know, something on the edge of town, and you've backed up all your density into one corner. So you want to build a 20-story building with four levels of underground parking on the edge of a suburban area. Well, the land's not that valuable to start with, right? So we would say that deal is not going to pencil up. Does that make sense? So that's a borderline case on, let's say, the area doesn't match the product they want to build. Another place where I would call it marginal is where you've got a developer who is building a built form that he's never built before in a geographic footprint where he hasn't built before, right? So I'm saying to a developer, look, you should be building something that you already know how to build. Maybe you built it as a hotel or retirement home or as a, you know, you're using cold roll steel and core slab and you build an office building and a condo out of it. Great. Let's build an apartment out of that same thing and let's build it in a geographic footprint that you're comfortable in. So you see my point? And then the third one is where we see borderline cases. Again, it might not be the asset. It's somebody wants to convert an office building to an apartment building. Well, that's a tricky deal. And if you haven't done it, so geographically, you should be living in that town to do it because there's lots of hair on that deal and conversions are tricky. So you're going to need a way bigger spread between your development yield and your exit cap rate to justify doing a conversion because conversions always take longer and cost more expensive to do. So that's where we see guys, you know, we start right off the bat. Our discussion is just kind of warning them about those situations. Make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I, I've personally heard yeah, a number of horror stories about converting other asset types into apartment in terms of budget and timelines getting blown out. You mentioned at the top as well, the quick no's, a 10-minute free no's. Yes. Is there any geographies that you're just going to give a quick free no on? I'll try and give you some, but I'm not sure if there will be too many other than you know, resource-based towns like Fort McMurray. The first question we always ask a developer, and we call it the big question, are you building to sell or are you building to keep? Because that's going to determine a lot. So for example, if you're building in a secondary or tertiary market, by the way, we love secondary and tertiary markets. You can get better yeah, us too, us too, Derek. We think there's lots of opportunity in right, that, right, that right. space. But the only downside about these markets is liquidity. So if you're building in a town of 30,000 people, and there has been an apartment building there built since you know, 30, 40 years ago, right? And population is getting older, great market. But on a suburban Toronto project, I'll get 10 offers mm-hmm. to sell it. On a small town, I might get two or three. So what I'm saying is if you're building for cash flow and you want to keep it in the family for a couple of generations, then you're probably going to make more money on that secondary tertiary town, but your liquidity is going to be much lower. You see my point? And it's an yeah. important distinction to make. So our question always to a developer, always, and we'll beat it to death, is are you building to sell or building to keep? But you can change your mind. But if you're building to keep it, you're going to develop different unit mix, different unit size, and a different amount of parking. If you're building to sell it, you're going to build a different product from what you're planning on keeping. Are you seeing an increase in that merchant builder in the apartment space? Yes. But I think maybe the way to answer is that proportionately, it's the same. So we were doing one of our webinars and I did a poll. How many people, and you can only pick one, are you building for whatever the reasons were, for cash flow, to feed your machine, to monetize your land, you know, et cetera. 
55% of the people said they were building to keep to build generational wealth. So that's what apartments have been really good at doing is building generational wealth. You know, I often say when I'm talking to people, can you remember the home builder from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s? The answer is a lot of times you can't. They're not there anymore, right? Somebody else owns that house. Can you remember the apartment developer, 60s, 70s, 80s? Yes, lots of them still own the land, all the buildings, and their children and grandchildren have built empires and are wealthy. And even if they've sold them, those buildings are still attributable back to that great guy who built it in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You see my point? Yeah, we just interviewed Kevin Green. I think the podcast yeah. got released last week. So there there's, a, there's the best example, one of the top examples. So I want to circle back for a second, Derek. You had talked about the challenge of affordability. Do you get approached by your clients at times to look at developing affordable units? And how does that metric and how do you go about those calculations? Because it is complicated. Yes. And maybe if you're familiar, maybe let's talk a little bit about some of the CBC programs around those opportunities. Let me just take this back to first principles first. And I wish right now we could do a survey. I would ask this question. Do you believe housing is a want? A, is a need? B, or a right? C. And I don't need you guys to answer, but ask yourself that question. Is housing a want, a need, or a right? I'm going to give you my opinion on it. I believe housing is a need. And the reason I believe is because if we make housing a right, then a want becomes a need, a need becomes a right, and a right becomes a claim against the taxpayer. I, I fully followed. Yeah, and mentally, I was actually, when you said you don't have to answer, I felt a little bit of relief, but I will say that in my head, I was leaning towards need for those same reasons. Yeah, exactly. We'd all love it to be a right, but then it becomes a claim against the taxpayer. And the best housing is not provided by the government. It's provided by the private market when you leave it alone. And you, know, you don't need to go on a rant here about rent controls, but we've really, really distorted the marketplace here. Ford has brought in, you know, unintended consequence of a rent freeze next year. Look, potato, potato, if he leaves it on for one year, right? But every time the government interferes in the private housing market, it doesn't do the people it's protecting, the tenants, any good. So yeah, look, there's some good affordable programs in place. And I think that the affordable programs probably go on the B sites. Fair enough. So you're not going to put it on an A plus site, whereas luxury apartments on the A plus site. I think it's more suited to the people who have longer term visions, because you don't make that much money in that first 20 or 30 years. So if you're building for the long term intergenerationally, then I think some of the affordable programs, you know, make sense. And for sure, we're doing side by side analysis of affordable versus doing conventional market rate. And I think it's more, I don't know if the returns are, are that different, because you do get pretty preferential interest rates, right? Higher leverage, you know, and stuff like that. But I think everything goes to what is the developer's motivation? Right? So it comes down to why are you doing this and are you building it to keep it or sell it? So if you're building to sell, I think affordable probably isn't such a good idea right now. Right? It's not really a tradable asset class. Could be in the future, but right now I think it isn't. Derek, what we're finding is it is that private family looking to build generational wealth, taking advantage of some of the CMHC programs where you can get up to sort of 95% loan to cost with some affordable units. All of a sudden, if I can build two 60 plexes rather than one 60 plex, the same amount of cash. Yeah, I'm getting a lower return over that first 15, 20 years, but I'd rather have 120 units for 50 years for my kids than 60 units. So why wouldn't I take advantage of that opportunity? Right. Right? But, but, but if you're a merchant building, you might not do that. You might just build the 60 units, build it, flip it, make your money, pay your tax and move on, right? Well, the other common theme too is these groups also tend to have existing portfolios of market rent product as well. 
yes. to sustain over the short term. If this is your first project, jumping into affordable might not be the best idea. Well said. I think that's another point. Yeah. I don't want to scare listeners away. We're talking about dropping rents. We're talking about rent freezes. Before people panic and start selling before the end of this podcast, what's some of the happier points for apartment owners right now? No, no, this no, this look, could be for new or existing product, you know, Yeah, both. look, I think it was fair for us to have that discussion. But look, the apartment sector has done extraordinarily well over this downturn. It's hardly flinched. We're lucky, the three of us, to be in this asset class. I'd hate to be a retail broker right now, a retail consultant. And you guys probably hate to be lending on it right now, right? Because it would be so difficult. Same thing with the hotel and, and I don't know about office yet, but I think there really isn't that much bad news. Everything is held up extraordinarily well. Interest rates are low. Investor demand is there. Tenant demand is there. We just, to be fair to everyone, you guys asked me questions about where the pain points are. I have to search for them. And then for, you mentioned transactions there as well. Are cap rates holding in a, amongst all this? It's still early to say, right? Because the lag time on cap rates has actually gotten longer. Deals are taking longer to do. I mean, inspections take longer. Everything's taking longer today, right? So I think I'll say the following about cap rates that should be forward-looking. On center ice properties, I think cap rates are actually going to compress because the demand is going to be great for those great assets, interest rates. Look, the spread between the 10-year government of Canada and cap rates is the highest it's ever been. So people are pricing in risk, let's say, right now, right? But they're going to see that apartments have done extraordinarily well through the worst of this. So I suspect that could come down. So my guess, and it's a guess, is that centerized properties, you could see cap rates compress. Now, if you had a C building in a C location prior to the shutdown, things got pretty frothy. So for the first time when we're selling apartments, everyone's asking, what's the resident profile? So you got two identical buildings beside each other. One is filled with restaurant workers and one's filled with healthcare workers. Which one do you want to buy? So I think people are going to be looking at resident profile the way that you look at it in the covenant on retail. C covenant on retail, A, big difference in cap rates. So I suspect that the C quality building in the C area run poorly has probably had a little bit of pain in the beginning because it just weren't organized enough, you know, and things like that. So I could see maybe those cap rates rising, but on the really good stuff, I could actually see them compressing, would be my guess. It's early to say. Apartment transactions, I think I said earlier, were down 40% between the six months before shutdown and after across Canada. And, you know, it could be another six months of, you know, not a lot of transactions. Now, a few big portfolios are coming to the market, but maybe you should count also not just the dollar value, you should count the number of transactions too, as also another indicator. Because, you know, in a lightly traded market, one transaction can really skew things. And those numbers, by the way, were like 600 million and 300 million in the six months before and the six months after. So $150 million transaction could skew it. So count the number as well as we go forward. And that makes sense. I think people are still hesitant right now to know what's going on. You know, something that's been interesting as Adam and I have had these interviews that's been coming up more and more is sort of the programmatic living for one terminology or, or just in regular times or COVID or, or whatever that lease up and target markets are becoming more focused. Yes. And that selecting a type of tenant profile versus, you know, just putting up a sign saying, you know, vacancy and whoever walks in the door with a good credit score gets the unit that they're saying, no, no, I only want seniors or I only want young 20-somethings with a good solid job or, you know, just being way more focused. How do you guide or counsel your clients on those types of thought process? Yeah, that's a great question. I think targeted market based on the persona that's eventually going to live in the building is the way to go for existing buildings and certainly for new construction. So let's talk about new construction first because it's easier. The unit mix, the size of the units and the amenities you put in are going to be driven by the persona of the people that are living in the area. 
fair enough, or they're going to come to the area. So that's how you design everything. It's not the developer's hunch. It's not the architect's hunch. It's the data. So who's moving into the area? What's their age? What's their income? How many cars do they have? So we were designing a building, which has now been, by the way, been built and sold. But when we first did the feasibility study, electric cars were not the rage seven years ago. Fair enough. As we start, as we went back and looked at the changing demographics, we realized that we had to put in charging stations for 12 cars. There's an example of designing something for people you want. So the demographic is kind of dumbbell shaped. Renters are typically younger or they're older. Fair enough. In the middle, they're families. You know, if they're going to pay that top rent in new construction, then they're going to be able to buy a home or come close to buying a home. That's changing in Toronto, by the way. We may have housing prices that are so high. So I think your question is really spot on. Even an existing building, when you're redesigning your marketing campaign, you should be targeting who you want. And even if you've got three, four, or five personas, which you will have, you target your persona by the advertising. So let me give you an example. Let's say you have a resident referral program, which is, by the way, a great thing to do. You pay your existing residents to send you referrals. Well, if I'm targeting young guys and roommates, my referral flyer is just going to be funky with maybe a bunch of people sitting around having beer and pizza and saying, make your friends your neighbors. Get 500 bucks. It's going to be in your face. If I'm trying to get a senior to refer me someone, it's going to be more of a, we're just helping you choose your neighbor. I'm not going to be focusing on the money. I'm talking about the community you're building. So that's an example of how you target your marketing to your persona. And then the second is, if you're doing new construction, how you design your building. So I bet you right now, if I asked you guys this question, would you build one bedrooms or one bedrooms and dens if you were designing a new building? What's your answer? Pop quiz. One bedroom plus den. Of course. I'm leading you guys down the garden path here, okay? Perfect. (laughs) Everyone is saying people are working from home, so they're going to want one bedrooms and dens. Absolutely true. But if you're building for seniors, you give a senior a choice of saying, I'm going to give you a 700 square foot one bedroom or a 700 square foot one bedroom and den. They're all going to choose the one bedroom and no den because they want a bigger living room. They're not working from home. You get my point? Whereas if you were in a downtown Toronto or an urban marketplace, you would probably do a higher mix of dens than not. So the point I'm trying to make, it's not one answer. And it comes back to, I think, Aaron, your first question about the persona of the piece. Are you target marketing? Yeah, go build a 60-40 split of two bedrooms to one bedrooms. Now I could be 80-20 and 20-80 in very different locations. Along that same theme, I want to indulge in a bit of absurdity, but if you can entertain me for a minute, I would appreciate it. Like as lenders, when we see commercial rent rolls, we examine every single tenant very closely. And you even alluded to it about 10 minutes ago in regards to looking at the, the tenant rolls and relying on data for the area. So we'll look at an, an area date and say the average income is $145,000 in this postal code. That's why this building makes sense. Could you see a future, I mean, privacy issues notwithstanding, where you would have that profile on a building? So you go to market and sell a building and you say the average income of everybody in the building is... and the average credit score, every tenant is 720. They tend to work in these industry type codes where you could have that kind of nuanced data just for the building and that would affect its ultimate valuation when you took it to market. We're already doing that, 100%. And I'll tell you, we were doing it pre-COVID, but for a different reason. Our business model is, you know, we do the feasibility study, we sit on the design team, we do the lease up and then we sell it, right? That's the perfect scenario. So oftentimes developers who are the merchant builders want to get out before stabilization. And, you know, you leave chips on the table. So what we do is we're selling the resident profile. Pre-COVID, we were selling it to say, look, this is our resident profile. You just got to finish the leasing up. 
here's our priority waiting list, here are the people waiting to sell homes. And we would have real data on their age, their income, number of cars, and where they were moving from. Because a lot of times, if it was a suburban building, I was saying, look, the building's already full. We got 100 people waiting to sell their homes. We've only got 30 apartments left. So we were already doing that. The other thing I wanted to show the new buyer was we weren't looking for needle in a haystack. Look, our closing ratio is 20%. Look, you should be doing this anyways, keeping track of your traffic. How many phone calls, how many walk-ins, how many e-leads? What was your closing ratio, right? And a closing ratio can be between 10 or 20%, let's say. If I've only got 20 units to lease up, my closing ratio should be 2% because I just need 20 units to lease up. So yeah, I think that what you do in retail and what you might do in office is what we're going to start doing in the rental business. We're already doing it, but I was doing it for a different reason before. I was doing it to say, look, you're going to be able to get the building full. It's just a matter of time. But we want the guy to close early. Today, I think on a stabilized building, you are selling your resident profile for sure. So I think as a broker, I would want to be presenting my demographic profile and income profile, age profile, all that stuff. It's a great question. So you think in 15 years, we would look back and kind of laugh at the way we did business now, which is, as you said, just, oh, building's full? Great. (laughs) I think most buyers would say to you, listen, maybe we gave the resident profile a little short shrift. I say this half-heartedly, but I've worked in some pretty tough buildings in my life and I've sold some pretty tough buildings in my life. Drug pushers never get up early, right? So there's certain buildings where you did the tour earlier. Another broker trick is, is that anytime you see a photograph of a building from a helicopter shot, it's probably not such a great building. The further you get away to show the building on the front cover of the brochure, the more it tells you about it. I'd say half in jest, but you know what I mean. I like these tips and tricks. This is pretty good, Derek. <laughs> We're going to start requesting a really detailed rent roll. We'll call it the Derek Lobo approach to lending. Yeah. But, All but, of our know, clients you, will be cursing you, your name, saying, well, yeah. why did you tell them that they should be yeah, asking for that? Yeah, yeah but you know, the, the other thing I've noticed about this COVID period is, and I did hundreds of phone calls, especially in the beginning. I actually missed doing them because I've gotten busy again. But the transparency that occurred between competitors, between clients, was really one of the few upsides I saw of this COVID period. You know what I mean? People were talking their heart. They weren't talking their book. I thought that was quite refreshing. We seem to feel that as well, that people are more transparent, more willing to tell us what's going on. I think if there's a silver lining potentially to COVID, it's, you know, breaking yeah. down a little bit of people's strong exteriors, for yeah, lack of a better you know, definition. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that was sort of the question I was asking, how are you better because of COVID? And we probably spent too much time talking about the soft and fuzzy stuff because there's been some real damage to the economy. And nobody wants to talk about how are we going to dig ourselves out of this very, very deep hole? Where does this show up. So yeah, there've been some warm and fuzzies and people have gotten in touch with gardening and they're growing larger tomatoes and that's all great. But we've got some real issues, right? That we're going to have to dig ourselves out of. And I think the sooner we start talking about it, really having an honest discussion about it, I think it's important. So one example is, you know, as I drive by to work every day, I go by a Swiss chalet. There's a great big now hiring sign on the front window that probably blocks some of the sunlight coming in. How does that happen in a time when we've got record high unemployment? So who's talking about, you know, CERB and the moral hazard? I think that describes itself, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, that we're facing and things like that. So I think it was a pretty tough time to be in government and make the right decisions. But if you haven't made the right decision, then the smartest thing to do is to change that decision as soon as you can. On that topic, Derek, amongst other things, you are a business owner. You are the head of your company. What are you doing within your own organization in terms of getting working life back to normal? Yeah. So we have 20 staff. And when COVID first hit, nobody knew what was going on. So I took the five junior people and we furloughed them. And actually, that was probably an overreaction on my part. Pretty much everyone's back. 
So here are some of the challenges that we had. Number one was everyone said working from home was as efficient as working from the office, maybe for the short term. But I got to tell you, how do you build a team virtually? The reason we were as efficient was because we all knew each other. We had systems set up. We had a few people who worked from home. So thank goodness we were maybe more set up than most, right? Because we had people, our VPN was set up and things. That wasn't that hard to do anyways. I think that what I would say to people who are proponents of working from home, and maybe there's an aspect of it, but you know, if you work from home for two years and your boss never sees you, who says I can't outsource your job to a jurisdiction where I'm paying 75% less in wages if I never see you? You see my point? Yeah, Absolutely. So everyone is saying that working from home is as good. I think some positions, yes. Maybe our accounting staff, but our brokerage team, we sit together in one room. Everybody hears everybody's discussions. There are pain points that I just want people to see and feel when you think the deal is going to close and on the last day to find an oil tank on the site. That doesn't come across in a Zoom meeting. And you learn your lessons probably at your darkest times, oftentimes when you've been handed something that's a real problem. And so I think that some businesses, our business brokerage, which is, we only have three brokers or four brokers out of 20 people. The rest are all support staff. Pulling a deal together is a team effort. Gone is the day of the individual broker with a pair of golf clubs in his trunk, right? Like today, this is a complex business where you need different disciplines working closely together. So I would say that the good people did really well in COVID, but the people who were struggling struggled more at home because they weren't strongly organized and things like that. So that's kind of my gut feel. We came back to the office about two weeks ago. In our case, it was easy because we've got like 5,000 square feet for like, you know, 12, 15 people who work in the office. And there's three entrances to the office. And if you want to kind of come in and lock the door in a private office, you almost can. There's no elevators involved and things like that. So I think that it's hard to hire people. I've hired a couple of people and I'm in the process of hiring people. I kind of joke and say, can you just stand up? I want to know how tall you are. Like, you know, so much is about chemistry. It's no, I don't want to hear about a human rights thing or something, not hiring tall people or something. But so much of when you're hiring, like right now I'm hiring an EA and so much of that is chemistry. Especially yeah. when you work closely with a person, right? I can't build that chemistry on a Zoom meeting. I gotta just sit and talk for a long time, multiple interviews. You gotta come in the office, you gotta meet the team, you gotta see us when we're up, when we're down, and things like that. So I think team building is hard, but I certainly understand the problems of it. But I would say that working from home is not the be all and end all of everything. And for the people that are real proponents of it, I would say think about your job. If you can work from home, then maybe you can work from home forever, and then maybe your employer can outsource it to a lower jurisdiction. Aaron could probably comment better than me, but I know that we're feeling that pain at First National as well. And we're also feeling it at the podcast. You know, this is our third podcast together, Derek, and I like the one in person the best because you just have that much more of a connection when you're speaking. You know, we're getting by on Zoom, just as you know, business in you're, general you're is right getting by the, on Zoom. You're right. The first one was in your office. I never thought about that. Yeah, You can slap the guy who starts talking silly. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do here if I say something dumb? Mute you. I'll just mute you. (laughs) Let's not waste this opportunity. There are some efficiencies that have happened. I got to be in front of the guy. I'm a broker. I got to build relationships. If you've already built the relationship, I think you can have a, I'll pick a number, 70, 80% effective discussion on Zoom. But I'll tell you, if I've got an offer in my hand, I'm driving to the guy's office. I don't care how long it is. I've driven to a lot of cottages, which has been quite interesting. A lot of my clients are at their cottage. So I've driven a lot of offers to cottages. Actually, it's been a lovely day. People have opened up more at their cottage. And because when you're presenting an offer, man, I want to see everything about like your body reaction, how you look, whatever, right? Because you're at that critical moment. So stuff like that, 
you can't do on Zoom. But other things like seminars, I'm almost going to say that the webinars are as effective. We put people together in breakout rooms with questions, and then we rotate them. They love meeting each other. And so some things have been better. But the key ones, you can't replace a face-to-face conversation on key issues. So if you meet a first-time guy you're doing business with as lenders, you want him to understand you and you him, right? There's lots of other people to go to. It's the relationship you have. But if you've done five or 10 deals with a guy, you can do a Zoom meeting today, almost as effectively. Derek, we're almost out of time here, but you know, we always like to end these on a high note. It's been a, a theme throughout as a way to uplift people's spirits during COVID-19. For your closing thought, what's been your most unexpected positive learning to come out of COVID-19? You know, the people that I felt the most for have been young people. So you come out of university or college, you've spent a lot of money, you've worked hard, and you come into a pretty tough environment, right? So I was talking to a client and there was a little bit of gloom and doom. I said, what's the good news out of this thing? And we both agreed that this would be a wonderful time if you're a young person to go out and find a mentor. It comes back to that transparency idea. And I've had seven mentors in my life and now I'm trying to mentor some people and it's a rich, rewarding experience. So I would think that when people have been through a bit of a difficult time, it hasn't been that bad for most of us, right? But I would say that for young people, take this time as a learning factory in a laboratory. You're never going to get this experience again. And it's still going on. I would say go out and find a mentor or a couple of mentors and say to them, I want you to help me have the best life I can, whether it be a spiritual thing, a mental, physical, or business. But I just think, first, it's always fun if you're an older guy or an older person to mentor a younger person, right? And I'm getting to that stage now in my 60s, right? So I'm interested in more than just business. So I would say that that could be one of the positive things coming out of this, that we look to mentoring people, sharing what we know. That can also be financial. I mean, people who mentored me, I've done deals with. There's one particular broker, his name is Daryl McCullough, a dear friend of mine. Daryl just mentored me and helped me. We've done several deals together now. So it's not just a thing that you do. It's something I think that could be beneficial to you as the person doing the mentoring and the person being mentored. So that would be a thing that I haven't heard a lot of people say that I felt. And I would recommend people to think about doing that on both sides. I couldn't agree more. It's a great way of giving back. I mean, the beginning part of anybody's career is always just a very emotional period. It's emotionally draining, emotionally trying. You're trying to figure out this new landscape. And I couldn't imagine doing it during COVID. And yeah, I remember every single person that helped mentor me and I'll remember them for the rest of my career. For the people listening, these have been profitable mentorships for the people who are my mentors because I did deals with them or we did a joint venture together. Because look, as you get older, what you should be doing, and you guys are young guys, so but this isn't going to happen. You want to start using your brain and not your back. Does that make sense? I hope my amortized knowledge is worth more than me writing a feasibility study. You see my point? So what you should be doing as you get older is using your relationships and your knowledge more than doing the actual work. So for example, if you're a broker, on a due diligence, you can be on a site for three days. Well, that can be done by a more junior broker who's going to be drinking from the fire hose. You see my point? He or she's learning a tremendous amount of stuff going through with the environmental, the structural guide, with the owner. Do you see what I mean? I don't know how much I'm going to learn doing that. And I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be building relationships with the next developer or the next buyer or something along that lines. Thank you, Derek. I do like the idea of working smarter, not harder. It becomes appealing as each year goes by. Up next, we do have the after show, so stay tuned. In the meantime, I want to thank Derek for coming on for a third appearance. Much appreciated. 
knowledgeable as always. And of course, there's always, you know, a fourth appearance around the corner as this apartment market continues to evolve. So Derek, thanks a lot. All right. Keep the faith, guys. God bless. Thank you. Thanks, Derek. Great conversation. We want to thank everybody for listening. We want to thank First National for powering the podcast. And up next is the after show. Here's the commercial real estate podcast after show where Adam and I kind of talk about the conversation we just had. This one with Mr. Derek Lobo. You know, that wasn't part of the CAIC, which is happening tomorrow as we're here on the 14th. The Canadian Department Investment Conference. Yeah, thanks. As we've been doing a ton of apartments, that was a kind of a good wrap for those that have kind of been listening to these podcasts as they come out and, and maybe hopefully participating in the Real Estate Forum Club with some of the webinars we've been doing. Really interesting to hear him talk about that there is a significant increase in new supply at different stages. However, 300 developments across the country, across you know 130,000 apartment buildings, really is nothing. We're still heavily, heavily undersupplied. It's a drop in the bucket. I mean, you get expanded out to look at the land supply that's going to ultimately be apartments, but then you're, of course, you're applying multi-year wait periods before you'll ever see somebody living inside them. So it's still just a builder's paradise, I think, in Canada. I mean, it's funny talking about the apartment development speeding up. You know, from my little corner of the apartment universe, just in terms of the clients I deal with, yeah, like I've seen that. Nobody's slowing down to the build side. Not that I have visibility to that entire industry, but it's good to hear from Derek, who has more of a 3,000-foot view on it, that that is the case. We should probably have a guest on that can talk a little bit more about the specific numbers, because when we've had guests on in the past, Wendy Waters, maybe Sean Hildebrand, who kind of really look at the data around these things. I think it was Wendy Waters saying, we're 100 years away before we even start to meet the demand. That was including some pretty crazy projections on immigration. And I'd like to believe we're making a bigger dent, and we probably are, than we have in the past. But I still think we're a long, long way away before you know our supply metrics start matching the demand needs. One thing that I'm not surprised to hear, given how well apartments have done during COVID-19, but no distressed sales. And there won't be a point during this entire cycle where you will be able to pick up properties in distress in a significant way due to COVID. You know, there was the asterisk, of course, that individual buildings might have an issue outside of COVID-19. But in my conversations with buyers, people were kind of looking to make lemonade out of lemons by buying distressed assets during this downturn. And it doesn't happen. That just continues the run of low cap rate, high price per unit valuations at apartment for then, you know, into the next cycle. It's kind of mind boggling. And Derek kind of mentioned it. Interest rates are at historic lows. I mean, I don't know what our all-in rates are today for a CMC insured five-year mortgage, but it's one and a half percent, you know, one and three quarters, something like that. So if you're buying a building at at a 4% cap rate, that delta between the cap rate and the interest rate is actually wider than it has been in a long time. And he's saying, oh, there's built-in risk in that delta, but that will continue to kind of, I think, save people's bacon, quite frankly, at times when you can turn around and refinance your 3% interest rate you did 10 years ago into something half that, right? And all of a sudden, your cash flow looks amazing again, even if you do have some delinquency or bad debt or vacancies. It's just kind of fascinating the way interest rates just keep saving people. And, you know, I think the other thing that I think about when you're talking about distressed assets, you know, the apartment market has just been institutionalizing forever, right? It's been a consolidation of ownership for a long time. So there just isn't a lot of smaller owners that might own three, eight plexes, right? There's just not a lot of that who might be the profile of an individual that may be struggling in this particular situation with COVID and rent deferrals. It is curious. 
And we're early. I don't know what inning we're in. Maybe it's a third or fourth inning, but we're still not even, I don't think, really out of the weeds yet. So there may be additional headwinds that contribute to this. Hopefully not. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting point. We kind of talked about it very briefly in the podcast is interest rates are likely to stay low for a while. And as you do see some negative news come out, I mean, you know, Aaron date stamped this at the start of the show, but Ontario just saw a spike back up to COVID numbers that we had not seen since June. Just as announced earlier today, you know, this this second wave seems to be materializing out in British Columbia and perhaps here in Ontario. And that will just keep the valuations on apartments strong in the sense that it continues to be a safe haven of all the asset classes and also keep interest rates low for the foreseeable future, which have been two real mainstays of the asset class. Not that you want to see distress in the economy as a whole, but it does reinforce the apartment market's place within it. Yeah. And who knows where we're going to go from here. Let's just hope that that misses a blip, right? And that we're not going to, we're not going to have the second wave, although everybody says it's inevitable now. Hopefully you're not going to be recording from your boathouse. It'll be too cold in November, December, but I suspect you're staying at the cottage as long as possible. And unfortunately for me, it means I'm stuck in my cold, dingy, unfinished basement for longer as well. And as we refer to, I, I do really want to get back to recording in person, but I don't think that's happening anytime soon. No, unfortunately not. Well, not to end on a low note, but we'll keep doing our end here to keep producing podcasts in the best way we can. Hopefully it's in person soon, but thanks again to everybody who listened to the very end. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.